So we have uh, been working through uh, the book of Acts, a study in uh, the book of Acts, and uh, it's going to continue today. Uh, This is a time uh, for us uh, during our worship service where we hear the word of God preached and respond to it. And again, it is something that we do because God has called us to do it and we want to be faithful to him. And we believe that he, he works through this. So today we're going to be looking at protecting gospel integrity and uh, that uh, title, uh, I want to make sure that it's not misunderstood from the standpoint that, uh, that I think uh, that God needs help from us to protect something that he himself will do. I totally believe that he is a sovereign, powerful God, but uh, he also has called his church and his people uh, to hold Uh, to the gospel, to hold fast to it, and in that way is how I'm referring to protecting gospel integrity. As we're going to look in a few minutes, there was dissension in in Antioch, and that word dissension means that something was opposed, and those who uh, opposed pushed back. Uh, And and it kind of raises an interesting question for Christians that I think we're all faced with at one time or another in our lives, in our just daily lives at work, with with family members, uh, maybe even with strangers. But that's this question, the question of uh, of there being a time uh, where Christians should should push back against the, the tide or... Or are we always called to just go along with, uh, with things to get along? Uh, I, I even looked up that phrase, go along to get along. Maybe that's not something you've, you've heard before, but uh, psychology today literally had a definition for it, and I'm in no way endorsing that. Uh, just using their definition, uh, whether in social situations or in an organizational context, Going along to get along arises from a desire to avoid conflict and a reluctance to be seen as the spoiler. And they put that in quotes. The person who's always criticizing ideas and plans that everyone else thinks uh, is good or or favors. Nobody wants to be that person, or at least most people don't want to be that person. But there are some people who enjoy being that person. Let's just be honest. There are. Uh, but, but Christians, we're, we're often in that situation, right, of having to play spoiler. I'm sure you've felt that way, right? You're, you're out with your friends. There's something going on. You're in a situation where even maybe mixed with other Christians and you're like, oh, like, am I going to have to be the one that says something about what's happening right now? Because I'm kind of not uh, in agreement with it. Or, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to lose my witness or I feel like it's not glorifying to God. And, and I don't want to have to be the one that, you know, that says something uh, about it. I'm always the one or, or something like that. Our text today, it shows us that there are times when, when Christians, when the church is called to push back, uh, to not go along just to get along. Uh, and it isn't always easy. Uh, it's, it's not easy to do and it's not easy to know when that is. Because uh, we're not supposed to do that in every situ- situation. We're, we're, we're not supposed to be uh, you know, disruptive uh, people from that standpoint. Uh, especially if all we're trying to do is avoid conflict. But there is a time where we do need to push back. 
And, and today, what we're going to do is we're going to study a significant event in the history of the church. This is a pretty significant event. And we're going to take our time going through this chapter because it is so significant. It's going to take us several weeks just to get through this, uh, just, just through this chapter, just to make sure we're not rushing through it. And, and today, we're going to see what the issue is that, that's happening in the church uh, that they need to address. We're going to see why it's so serious. We're going to look at how Paul and Barnabas responded to it. And then we're going to look at how the church at large responded and, and then have some things that we can learn from it. So my prayer is let's, let's seek the Lord together. And as we all face these situations, I, I don't know the situations that you face in your, in your life where that, that's presented to you, where you're like, okay, what do I do? Do I speak up? Do I not speak up? And, and so even through this message, maybe you can be praying that God would give you wisdom and grace to handle those in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting way. And you could also pray for the courage to, to stand up when you need to, because there are times when we need to do that. So let's pray together and ask God to go before us. Lord, we submit ourselves in this moment to the authority of the word of God. We know that you speak through your word. May your people right now just take that in. The God of the universe speaks through his word. Do we want to hear from God? May we understand then how he speaks and may we be open in our hearts and in our minds to receive of your word that you've given to us. Guide and direct me and may you be glorified in all things, in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in um, Acts uh, chapter 15. We just uh, finished uh, 14. We left off uh, with that chapter last week. Paul and Barnabas uh, were sailing back uh, to Antioch, uh, which is where their journey started. And it's the church that sent them out. They were going back there. And so we, we find that they're now in Antioch and they're ministering to the church and the church is ministering to them. So, so it's kind of going, going back and forth. And then Luke kind of jumps right in and tells us what's going on. Verse one, chapter 15, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So Luke starts this chapter by telling us that some men from Judea have made the long trip to Antioch. Now the NIV, if you have that translation, it refers to them as certain people. And, and, and I have to say that really is the NIV's way of avoiding the reference to men as that's part of that, the new translation change that they made. But make no mistake, the, the, the word there, it, it's men. It's men who've arrived uh, in Antioch and it is these men that are doing the teaching in this church and it's these men that Luke is referring to. So I want to give you a little bit more information about these men because not much is given, but I want to give you at least what we know that they were Jews from the Judea region who had professed faith in Christ. And you may not be able to see that map that clearly, but you can kind of see how big the Judea region is. I mean, it's, you know, it includes Jerusalem and Bethlehem and other places. So when they say they came from Judea, they came from that region and they had professed faith in Jesus. They had professed faith in Christ. The other thing you should know is they were not sent from the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks when we look 
fully at the chapter. Uh, Acts 15 tells us that. They were not sent. And uh, the connection to the Judaizers that Paul mentions in Galatians and Philipp, uh, Philippians, which if, if you're reading the epistles, you'll see the, those Judaizers. It's unclear. We can't be sure that uh, these men are the same people. They could be, they may not be. Luke doesn't really make that clear. And he also doesn't make it clear if these men were true believers or not. He doesn't really tell us that, although it appears to me that they were not. And I'll explain that a little bit more as we go. But this is just a little bit of, a, of, of who these men from Judea were. So think about it. They come from this region. They're in the Antioch church. And they're teaching things that are not uh, right. According to uh, the ways that Paul and Barnabas have been taught. So what were they teaching the believers in Antioch? Let's look. Verse 1. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So we'll break this down. You cannot be saved unless you're circumcised according to the customs and law of Moses. So that's one of the things that they were teaching. They were teaching that salvation is by faith in Jesus plus something else. In this case, circumcision. Salvation is, is by faith in Jesus plus circumcision following the law. And if you really look at the law and the understanding of circumcision, you'd see that if you were going to be circumcised, it also meant that you were going to follow other uh, parts of the law. So this really was more comprehensive than just circumcision. And they didn't have apostolic permission to do this. They, they were doing this on their own. This is a rogue group of teachers uh, in the church Assuming, assuming authority, but uh, not really having that authority. And then we also see that, uh, this is circ that circumcision is a condition for true salvation. That's what they're teaching. The, so they're, they're putting a condition on true salvation. And the condition they're putting on these Christians in Antioch is circumcision. They're making circumcision a condition of salvation. Also, they're basically saying that Gentile Christians must become Jewish. And that's essentially what they're doing. They're, they're saying, yeah, you know, faith in Jesus, but you need to do these other things and essentially become Jewish. And again, circumcision and keeping the Mosaic law in order to be saved. So essentially, they're basically saying, get circumcised or leave the church. And that's pretty much the option that these guys are giving as they're teaching in Antioch. Now, I want you to notice something. They did not deny salvation by Christ, by faith in Christ. They're not, they're not saying salvation isn't by faith in Christ. They're saying salvation is by faith in Christ plus something. They're adding to it. It's subtle, but it's significant. It's subtle, but significant. And it's false. And, and, and Paul and, and Barnabas noticed this, and we don't have a lot of record here where it, you know, the entire church in Antioch is, is in uproar about it. There were probably people who were okay with this, um, but they were not. So Paul and Barnabas refute the teaching. Let's look at that, verse 2. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. This is Luke's way of writing. You see this often in the gospel of Luke. You see it in, in, in through the chapters in Luke where he will kind of make a ref- reference like there was no small dissension is his way of saying there was a pretty big deal going on. Um, and uh, it wasn't a little debate. It was a pretty, it was pretty, pretty significant debate. I don't know what that looked like, but uh, it was pretty significant. The NIV translates it as sharp dispute and debate. So this was not just a casual conversation. And it certainly wasn't, well, you believe that, I believe this. Let's all just get along. It wasn't that. It, it was not that. Uh, that's very, very clear. They, they, they want to make sure, uh, Paul and Barnabas do, that this is refuted. He sees it as another gospel, a false gospel that they can't let go. So they address it with these men and, be, and in addressing it, it results in a sharp dispute and serious debate. And again, you know, this is the early church. And so a lot of times we can think, but we just got to get back to churches today. We just got to get back to the early church. They never had any of these issues. Yes, they did. They had these issues. Uh, and uh, so uh, being, being like the early church doesn't mean you just kind of go along with everything. Uh, they, they address things. And they will not allow the gospel to get characterized in this false way. So I want to get to the core question that Paul and Barnabas are answering here. What are, why are they so upset about this? Well, the core question is, uh, is, is that they're answering the, the question of what is required for true salvation? What is really required for somebody to say that they have been saved by faith in Jesus' name? What, is, what does that really mean? What is, what is required? And there are two different options being offered here. And we need to know, we should know the difference between the two options that are being presented. The first option is salvation by faith in Christ alone. That's one. This is a distinguishing mark of true biblical Christianity. It's salvation by faith in Christ alone, by faith and grace in Christ alone. And you're not adding all of these things to it. And the next option is salvation by faith in Christ plus anything else. Really doesn't matter what you add. In this case... These men were adding circumcision. But make no mistake, what they were doing is essentially saying salvation by human works. That's what, that's what we need to understand. They were saying salvation by some added human work. In this case, again, circumcision. And so Paul and Barnabas are making sure that option one is the only option for the church. Going forward, option two it's not really an option at all. Now, if they did not address this, it could really lead to two different churches being formed at this time. I mean, you really could have a, a major split here and two uh, different belief systems taking place. You could end up with like the Antioch Christ alone churches, you know, and, uh, and, and them, you know, spreading. And then, you know, the Iconium faith plus works churches and, and all these faith plus works churches spread. And, and, it, and it's, it's not going to work. And it's not what 
Paul and Barnabas have understood to be the gospel, so they address it. Now, I want you to think about what the ramifications would be if if this kind of teaching, this kind of belief system spread throughout the the Greco-Roman world. What what would happen? I I have three ramifications that I want you to think about because I want you to see the significance of, of this. Like, this would have been very dangerous for the church. So the first one is, Jewish believers who were circumcised would see their circumcision and law-keeping as their assurance of true salvation. So what would start to happen is, is they would start to point to circumcision and law-keeping as, see, see, I'm a believer. See, I'm a true believer in Jesus. And that's, that's not what, what, what the apostles and, and what Jesus taught. And, and so this would be a ramification uh, that would take place as a result and not a good one. They'd be counting on their works as their assurance of salvation. And it would be a false assurance. Second, Gentile believers who thought they were saved would now wonder if their salvation was valid. How terrible would that be? Think about these churches that we just read about in Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch and all these, Greek, all these Gentile believers now, they're, they hear about what's going on in, in, in Antioch and now maybe spread to Jerusalem and they're like, wait, what happened? All of a sudden, we're, we find out that we're not Christians, like we're what, what did we miss? Oh, well, you, we, you know, maybe nine months later, you, you, need to get, you need to get circumcised or you're not. So all this time we haven't been really saved? So it starts to cause confusion. Third is faith in Christ, the grace of God, and the presence of the indwelling spirit would just become insignificant. And those are the important things. So what happens is anytime you have works-based salvation, you end up with something that starts to supersede what is really important. And that is faith in Christ, the grace of God, and the indwelling spirit of God in a person as a, as a seal and a mark of being truly born again. So what is most important would then become of least importance. So these ramifications are not good. And again, Paul and Barnabas are addressing it. So, what does Luke tell us? Well, he essentially tells us next then that the first, uh, that's the way I wrote it, the first church conference is planned. Uh, So, uh, you know, you think about, well, church conferences, why do, you know, pastors go to that? That's just so, uh, you know, maybe the Americanized view. Well, we actually have a church conference here. Um, Verses two and three, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, uh, they were, uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so they're going to they're gonna confer together and, uh, and they're going to talk about it. And, and so the church in Antioch, they, they decide to send a group of leaders from the church and the group of leaders from Antioch are going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to discuss this further. And so the apostles who are in Jerusalem and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they will be the ones who answer this question. So I want you to see the significance of that. This question is too big of a question to be answered by even the church leaders in Antioch. They're going to go back 
to Jerusalem and the apostles and say, okay, we got to get this straightened out. We got we to get this answered. It's not enough just for a group of Christians who prayed about it and said, no, we think this is it. And that all of a sudden becomes what all the churches should do. No, they're, they're following really a biblical model because Christ is the one who started the church and he's the one who said, I've called these people to serve in these roles and they're following that by going to the leaders. But a question you have to ask is, will the, churches in, will the church in Jerusalem be biased against Gentiles? I mean, it's the church in Jerusalem, right? So, you know, that you would think, well, okay, I know the makeup of that church. They're in Jerusalem. I mean, this is really going to be about, will the leaders there really kind of be biased against the Gentiles, it, as I was thinking about this, I thought it was kind of like sending leaders from a Baptist church in New York, upstate New York, to churches in, you know, like Georgia somewhere, and they're going to confer and decide if potluck dinners are biblical or not. Okay, well, you go to Georgia, potluck dinners are not only biblical, they're part of spiritual growth, like in more ways than one. And I pastored a Baptist church in South Florida, so I know the value of potluck dinners in the South. But that's kind of what's happening. They're going into this hotbed of Jewish heritage to ask this and answer this question. So the question is, will there be impartiality? Will there be impartiality? So Paul and Barnabas and some other leaders from Antioch, they're sent to Jerusalem. It's a 250-mile trip. Uh, uh, just to resolve a theological disagreement. What a waste of time, right? I mean, that's what some of us think a lot of times, right? You know, oh, they're just talking about the things that are theological that really don't matter. We really should focus on the things that matter the most. This is serious business for the church. They need to decide this. It's going to have massive impact. And, and, and some today would say that any theological disagreement is a waste of time. That we need to just be about Jesus. Let's just forget about all of that and be about Jesus. But you can't be about Jesus if your theology isn't rooted in the scriptural Jesus. I mean, that's, we, we shouldn't be weak theologically as Christians. We should be strong theologically. And, and so we shouldn't just have beliefs, but our beliefs, I'm more concerned if I talk to you uh, in, in the church or you're a leader, or you've had any kind of discussion with me, you'll notice I'm more concerned, not so much about what you believe, but how you got there. Yeah. Okay. I understand you believe this, but where, where's the root? Where's the source? Is it coming from the, the scripture, the text, uh, what, what God has taught you, tradition, what's going on? Because those are things that matter. Theology rooted in the scriptural, in the scripture is so important. So they make this long trip either walking or through a rickety boat, probably. Um, and they get to, uh, to, to Jerusalem 
And uh, Luke tells us something that seems to not fit in. He tells us that they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. Areas that are populated by, uh, by uh, Hellenized Jews, Jews that have been really uh, absorbed into uh, the Greek culture. Uh, there's Greek Gentiles there and Samaritans, of course. Now, why is Luke doing that? Because these are the areas that were previously evangelized that he told us about. He had talked to us about Stephen and Philip and Peter and John and how these men had ministered in these areas and how the gospel spread. And so what he's, what he's saying is that Paul and Barnabas are going to these other believers. They're telling these believers that have already been evangelized in churches that have already been gathering about the many Gentiles who've believed in Jesus. They're probably telling them about what happened in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra saying, yeah, many Gentiles are coming faith in Christ. And these people in these areas are very excited about it. In fact, Luke tells us that it brought great joy to the people who are hearing this and also to this group from Antioch. So it's like Luke wants us to know that there's excitement over the church growing even among Gentiles. So let's look now at the reception in Jerusalem. Verse four, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. So now again, we see biblical leadership in the church, apostles and, and elders, not just apostles. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they finally again arrive in Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the church. And the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem, again, biblical leadership. And then what do the Christians do when they gather? They declare all that God has done in and through them and for them. Again, just another example of why we do what we do. The church gathers together and they talk about what God is doing, how great God is, who he is, the work he's done and testify and fellowship to one another. And then Luke says, but some believers. And I just thought, isn't that how it goes sometimes? But some believers, <laughs> right? Like things are going well, but of course something happened. Some believers, who were these believers? Luke tells us they were Pharisees who had believed the gospel and who, who were now a part of the Jerusalem church. Now, I want you to notice Luke refers to these Pharisees as believers. Now, he did not do that in verse 1 uh, when he was referring to the men who came uh, to Antioch from Judea. So, these are Pharisees that Luke has introduced as believers in Christ, part of the Jerusalem church. A Pharisee is somebody who spent their lives immersed in Jewish law, Jewish customs, traditions, and think about the fact that they're now believers in Jesus, because that's a big deal. For a Pharisee to believe in Jesus meant everything you knew about your life as a Pharisee is gone. You're not going to be invited back into the, be a part of the, of the Sanhedrin. You're not going to be able to have your life back with the Jewish leaders. You're probably not allowed back into the temple. I mean, your, your life has changed. And so let's not 
make it so that these guys have, have not truly trusted in Christ. They have, and Luke tells us that, and it's a pretty big deal. But what did these believing Pharisees say? They said it was necessary for all new Gentile believers to be circumcised and for them to keep the law of Moses. So you see that in verse 5. This is similar to what the men from Judea said, but it's not exactly the same. In fact, there is a significant difference. And I want to know if you caught it or if you saw it. These former Pharisees who were now believers are not saying that circumcision is necessary for salvation, but they are saying that it should be required for all Gentiles who believe. Now you might think, well, that's the same thing, isn't it? It's similar. It's not exactly the same. What they're saying is still wrong, but they don't seem to be making circumcision a condition of salvation. However, they're mistakenly making it a condition of obedience, a condition of spiritual growth, a condition of maybe sanctification. Now, again, remember, these Pharisees were trained in all things Jewish. The patriarchs were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The first Christians were Jewish. I mean, it's quite understandable, right, that they would see Christianity as being rooted in Jewish custom and belief. It's not... It's not crazy to think that, but they're still wrong. What they're saying is still wrong and it still needs to be corrected, which is what the leaders in the church are going to do. And so what I'm going to do is uh, stop there in terms of how far we're going to go today. We're going we're to pick back up next week and like I said, work our way through the rest of this text. But this is kind of leading up to what is going to now be happening as they discuss all of this. And I wanted to make sure that I gave you a good uh, idea of what was happening rather than try to rush through that first part um, in about 10 minutes. So uh, I think that gives us a good idea of where the conversation is going. Now what I'd like to do is just give you two truths to think about that you can consider and uh, even apply to your own life related to what we just talked about. First one is this, the true church should always be ready to protect the integrity of the gospel. The true church, we should always be ready to protect the integrity of the gospel. And again, make sure you're understanding how I mean protect. I started by asking you about the go along to get along mindset. There are no doubt, <clears throat> there are no doubt times that we need to avoid needless division and strife in the church. But when the integrity of the gospel is at stake, we need to stand up for the truth of the gospel. And I believe as a church, we, we have sought to do that. Uh, we, we, we've done that. I, we've, we've talked about things like the prosperity gospel, a, a false gospel that says, you know, Jesus is about your health and prosperity to all who believe in Jesus. And, uh, and, and, and kind of leaves it at that. We, we've done that more recently with the social justice gospel, which proclaims Jesus as a social activist and just wants us all to feel good about ourselves. And he doesn't require anything of us. There's no denying self. There's no pick up your cross and follow me, like Luke 14. We've stood against both. Uh, not, not to be intentionally oppositional, but to be faithful to the integrity of the gospel. Because, because we're, we're following the example of these believers in Antioch. We're, we're, we're following what, what, these, what these believers ha, are, are doing here. 
Last summer, we did the Gospel Conversation series. We addressed false versions of the gospel and contrasted them with the biblical gospel. Why did we do that? You heard even from people in our church who had been exposed to that. Well, to protect the integrity of the gospel, but to proclaim the true gospel as well and to help you. The problem in Antioch and the problem in Jerusalem was one of becoming more Jewish in order to be more Christ-like. And you may think that's no longer a problem. Yet here we are in 2023, and there is a, a growing movement in this regard, seeking to do just that, to make you more Jewish in order to make you more Christ-like. This movement is sometimes referred to as Torah observant, or you might have heard it as Hebrew roots movement. But in any case, what it is are professing believers, professing Christians who now believe that they're called to keep the Mosaic law, precisely the issue that Paul and Barnabas were addressing here, and in doing so, that is how you become more Christ-like. And, it's, and if you run across this, they're going to sound very knowledgeable because you're talking about the Old Testament and the law, and in many cases might know the Old Testament even better than you and can be quite convincing. But if you encounter this kind of thing, be aware because we do not become more like Christ by becoming more Jewish. Amen. We become more like Christ through submission to the Spirit of God who, dwe who indwells us. So we're not, we're not just trying to pick up some, some Jewish heritage and, 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 and bring it in and say, that's how we become more like Christ. He has given us his spirit and we are to submit to the spirit. And so you can just see how we have a tendency as humans to find ways to add things instead of just leaving the gospel as it is, which is, again, faith in Christ alone. And the second that I wanted to encourage you with is unifying around a tainted gospel is not unity. Unifying around a tainted gospel is not unity. I use the word tainted intentionally because I, I felt like if I used the word false, we'd kind of say, well, you know, I would never do that because many times we're just like, well, that's not really a false gospel. That's just a little bit different than mine, than ours, but that's okay. But we have to understand that we are to hold to the true gospel. These Jews in Jerusalem that are talking about this and the men that went to Antioch, they were close. They were close. But there's no close when it comes to the true gospel. There, what we have to understand is this. There's true gospel and there's not true. Does that make sense? True gospel, not true. Why is it not true? Well, that's where you get into a lot of different things. So yeah, we want to be people who are unified, but what we unify around is what defines our unity. And to be truly unified in and through the spirit of God, as the scripture teaches, we must be unified around the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ, grace in Christ, through Christ, grace of God, all of these things and not some works-based approach. Too many, too many today are talking about unity, but they don't want to talk about what defines unity. It's great for people to get together and say, we just need to be unified. And you're around a group of people and they're talking about, you know, let's just unify around Jesus. I want to make sure that we're talking about the same Jesus because I've learned already that many times that's not the case. 
to be unified around the true gospel, sometimes we need to say something about the tainted, partially true gospels of our world. Just like these believers did, but we need to do that in, with grace. We need to do that with discernment. We need to do that with love. Not to be right, but to be faithful to the Lord. And so I think that's something we all need to ask the Lord to do, to help us all remain faithful to the one and only true gospel, the true Christ as revealed in his word. And then let's ask the Lord to give us discernment and wisdom so that we might be able to see and then resist the deception of our enemy. He is very deceiving. And that's the example that we saw here with Paul and Barnabas. And so we'll dig into more of this next week. Continue to, we're going to hear next week as this church gathers, uh, Peter takes a, a leadership role and, and speaks and clarifies even more uh, what the gospel is. And we'll talk more about that as we continue to go through this. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the word of God that is true. We thank you that it is so clear. We thank you, Lord God, that as long as we submit ourselves to it and to your spirit, and ask you to reveal these truths to us that we can know it and follow it. Lord, help us as a church and as a people to be committed to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many versions out there. Lord, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to remain true to the gospel as we have received it and as it has been passed down to us. Faithful to your word, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that all that we have comes from Christ. And he gets all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.